Now many of the signs in John's Gospel are connected with a section of teaching from Jesus but they're not always immediately before or after the sign. And in the case of today's passage, the link is back to an earlier section in John chapter 5 uh, and we looked at uh, this and the extended passage on Friday night. Uh, let's hear what Jesus has to say. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As we've been seeing again and again, true faith is built on the word of Jesus. This means not only hearing and believing the words Jesus speaks, but hearing and believing Jesus himself as the word of the Father to us. So we hear Jesus' word and we believe, where is it? We hear Jesus' word, uh, where is it? Verse 24 there, sorry. And we believe the Father, hearing and believing Jesus himself and By doing so, we trust in the Father. The Father and the Son are a package deal. You can't have Jesus just on his own. Jesus the Son brings you to the Father to be adopted as a child of God. Now notice how Jesus speaks of this in the present tense. If you believe now, you have eternal life now. You don't have to wait till the day of judgment to find out whether you'll make it or not. Something has happened in the past that has secured your future so that you can live in the present with hope. When judgment day comes, there won't be any trepidation or fear because you've already heard the verdict being pronounced not guilty based on not the tally of your good or bad works but on the cross where all of your works were born by Jesus and done away with. It was at the cross that you passed from death to life, where you died, were buried with him and were raised with him to new life. But while we live today in the resurrection life of Jesus, the day is still coming when his life will envelop our whole beings when the immortality of Jesus will transform our bodies, when eternal life will mean not just our status before God as a justified person, but it will also mean life in a resurrected body in the new heavens and earth that will go on forever. It will never fade. It will never end. It will never become boring. Just as our faith in the present is created and founded upon Jesus' word, 
so too will the resurrection of our bodies come about by his word. So, the hour is now here when people are hearing Jesus' voice and coming to life. Those who hear and believe while still physically alive. But there's another hour that's coming when those who have physically died will be brought back to physical life. It's what theologians call the general resurrection. Now Jesus says all this uh, early in his ministry, two years before he goes to Jerusalem for his final Passover and to be killed. He's saying it to Jewish leaders who have challenged him because of his claim to be God, because he called God his own father. Now these words are definitely Jesus claiming to be God because only God has the ability to bring the dead to life by the power of his word. Jesus graciously gave this teaching to the Jewish leaders and his disciples well in advance of the sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So they had plenty of time to understand what this sign means and if they knew their scriptures, they should have got it. Now, there are three resurrections in the Old Testament and all of them are connected to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. The first one is the widow in Zarephath. Elijah prayed for the widow's boy. He stretched himself out on his body and the Lord brought him back to life. The second was the son of a wealthy married couple whom the Lord had given a son miraculously in answer to Elisha's prayer, but then he had died. Like Elijah, Elisha also prayed, stretched himself out on the body, the the child's body, and the boy lived. The third, maybe less known, resurrection happened after Elisha had died People brought a man to a graveyard to bury him but they were interrupted by a marauding band of Moabites and in their haste they threw the body into Elisha's tomb and the man came alive the moment he touched Elisha's bones. So only three resurrections in all of the Old Testament. shouldn't be surprising to us then to hear that in Jesus' ministry, he raised three people from the dead. One was a young man in the town of Nain, the son, the only son of a widow. The second one was the daughter of Jairus, a synagogue ruler and his wife, so a wealthy married couple. And then the third is this one of Lazarus. So, two resurrections in the context of a family setting and one in which a man comes out of a tomb alive. Clearly, it's no coincidence. Jesus is deliberate in repeating these Old Testament miracles done by Elisha and Elijah, yet his resurrections are different to theirs. Elijah and Elisha prayed 
they laid their hand, their bodies on the boys. And in the third case, Elisha did nothing because he was dead and it was just his bones there. But all three of Jesus' resurrections are done by his word. Young man, I say to you, arise. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Lazarus, come out. In every case, his word is directed to someone who's dead. How can a dead person hear someone speak? How can a dead person respond by obeying a command? Well, only if the one who commands isn't just speaking words, but is the one who speaks the words of eternal life. Only if the one who speaks has the power of God who said, let light shine into darkness with a word. The one whose word is actually powerful to bring into existence that of which he speaks. See, Jesus isn't merely echoing the resurrections of Elijah and Elisha, he's showing himself to be greater, superior to those prophets. He's showing himself to be the Son of Man whose voice can command the dead to live and they live. This Old Testament background then helps us to see the first two levels of this sign. On the first level, Jesus appears to be like Elijah and Elisha, a prophet from God with power to bring someone back from the dead. That's the physical dimension of the sign. Just like the healed man concluded Jesus must be a prophet. But just like those that Elijah and Elisha raised, these people will die again. Their resurrection is only temporary. Well, the next level deeper level of the sign is that Jesus can not only resuscitate a person by giving their breath and heartbeat back, he's also able to give eternal life, spiritual life in the present, which will eventually translate into physical, immortal life in the resurrection. But the third, the core level, is Jesus' identity, brought out by one of his own I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. So let's zoom into this core level by looking more closely at the story as it unfolds. Jesus hears about Lazarus' sickness when he's about 150 kilometres away from Bethany, up in the northeast of Galilee, about four days' journey away. So he knows that it was four days ago that Lazarus had become sick enough to make his sisters worried enough to send for him. And the sisters knew that it would be at least a week before Jesus would come to heal him. Now, upon hearing the news, he makes a statement similar to the one he made when he was asked about the man who was born blind that Lazarus' illness is all part of God's plan. Through it, not only will God be glorified, but even more of Jesus' glory as the Son of God will be revealed. That's not the only similarity with the sign 
of the man born blind. See how in verse 9 he makes a statement that's very similar to the one that he made in chapter 5. In chapter, sorry, in chapter 9. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And here he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So because of this parallel, I I believe we can understand His opening words, this illness does not lead to death, is not not saying that Lazarus isn't going to die because Jesus knows he will, but something more akin to it was not that this man had sinned. Or in other words, Lazarus isn't sick because God's judging him. It won't lead to spiritual death. The father has a bigger purpose in it. Just as with the blind man, Jesus had a confidence in the Father's purpose in this situation, that it's something that's for good, not for evil, that its outcome will be life, not death. Because of this confidence in the Father's purpose, he also has confidence in the Father's timing. He's not reactive, he's not feeling the pressure, the need to respond immediately and fix the problem as soon as possible, as we would be. He's happy to follow the Father's timeline, waiting until it's time to act. But is it just about getting the timing right? In fact, it's not the reason that John gives us for why Jesus did the way uh, things the way he did. See, what he says is Jesus' motivation. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. That little word, so, is all important. He stayed two more days because he loved Lazarus and his sisters. Think about that for for a moment. Jesus is delaying his response knowing Mary and Martha are waiting anxiously to hear from him, knowing that Lazarus will die before he gets there and knowing that Mary and Martha will go through all the required burial rites without him there. In Jewish culture, a person must be buried on the same day that they die. Because Jesus loves them, He didn't act to fix the problem instantly. We know from when he healed the official son, remember, uh, that he didn't need to be in the same location to heal people. So he could have just said the word and Lazarus could have been healed 150 kilometres away. We know from the miracle on the lake that Jesus could go from one point to another point in an instant. So he could have turned up at Bethany the moment he heard the news. But he does neither of these because the sign is about communicating something different to those other signs. I am the resurrection and the life. What does that phrase mean at its deepest level? 
It's more than I can give life or I will play a role in the final resurrection. To say that Jesus is the resurrection means that he himself must die and be resurrected so that true resurrection life can be given to us by one who has been where we are, who has confronted death head on, who's walked through its dark valley and come through the other side victorious. Resurrection life isn't imparted to us by a God from a distance who is just above us and just acts in raw power. No, it comes to us by a God who has come near, so near that he's shared in the weakness and the mortality of our humanity. A God who dies our death in order to make his life available to us. We get a hint of that right back in creation, don't we? In the act that Jesus echoed when he made mud and healed the blind man's eyes. The God who created all things that exist by the power of his word stoops down and gets his hands dirty, making the man out of the dust of the earth. Out of all of the creatures, humanity is created in this expression of intimacy from God, nearness, the touch of his hands, the kiss of the breath of his mouth to give us life. God's God's even happy to be described there in human terms, even though his spirit doesn't have a body, doesn't have hands, because that communicates to us that we are made for fellowship with him. That's why love is the motivation for Jesus' delay. The way that he deals with the situation gives us a beautiful display of this God who loved the world so much that he gave his only son, of the word made flesh and dwelling among us to make his glory known to us. So after two days he announces that it's time to go to Judea, despite the fact that the last time he was there, the Jews were so offended they tried to stone him. Here again we see his confidence in the Father's plan and the Father's timing. The Father's predetermined plan was that Jesus will be crucified at Passover, which is about six months away, Now, humanly speaking, Jesus could throw a spanner in the whole works by turning up too early and being killed before the time. But because it is a set time, set by the Father, he is able to go and perform this final sign in John's Gospel because it will be the sign par excellence, the ultimate sign that will illustrate his whole purpose of coming from heaven to earth. The reason his disciples don't understand what he means when he says Lazarus has fallen asleep is probably because there's only one reference in the Old Testament where death is described as sleep from which people may be awoken. It's there in Daniel 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, that's basically Jesus was paraphrasing that verse. 
Death as sleep wasn't a normal part of the Jewish vocabulary. The Jews themselves were divided between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over whether there will be any resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees said yes, the Sadducees said no. That's why they were sad, you see. It's only with Jesus and the first Christians that sleep became a regular way of talking about death. Not so much as a description of what happens in between when a person dies and Jesus returns, but as a way of expressing that physical death is not the end. The grave will not have the final say because everyone who lives and dies will be woken to have their final destiny determined by the righteous judge of the whole earth. Jesus is telling his disciples they, they need to be thinking and speaking about death with this hope in mind. Using words that express the gospel truth that death will not ultimately triumph. But they don't yet get it, so he's blunt with them. Lazarus is dead. But I think it's more than bluntness. We can speak of the hope that we know in the face of death, but death is still in this world a reality that we have to face and it's not a light reality. We can say death is just sleeping in a glib way. Jesus wasn't saying it in that way, but we can say it that way because it remains confronting and shocking and we want to avoid it. But it, death knocks us around. It leaves us weary and broken and grieving, sometimes for the rest of our lives. So calling it sleeping isn't to minimise the seriousness of death. Death is so huge, it's so serious that it required the Son of God himself to come into the world to defeat it. So when Jesus arrives in Bethany, he interacts with each of the sisters one at a time. Did you notice that each sister comes to Jesus with the same words of complaint? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet, Jesus' response to them is different. Now, we know from Luke's Gospel, these two sisters were different from each other, maybe in personality, but certainly in how they acted when Jesus came to their home. Martha was busy organising the food and the hospitality while Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. Martha was grumpy with Mary for not helping, but she was rebuked by Jesus for being anxious about many things instead of the one thing that was necessary, listening to Jesus' word. Jesus knows that each sister needs to hear something different in their grief. And each of his responses shows us the two sides of how death is to be faced and confronted by us who are told that we should be grieving, not as those who have no hope. And more importantly, it shows us how Jesus is the one who enables us to grieve as those who have hope. So Martha first, 
Martha adds some words to her complaint, some words of, exp- of expectation. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's, there's that expectancy that we saw in Jesus' mother as she announced that the wine had run out. And in Philip and Andrew announcing that there's not enough bread to feed the crowd. She knows that Jesus has power to perform miracles from God, but her faith needs to be brought to another level. Is Jesus here just to fix her immediate need of her grief? Or does her faith need to be enlarged to embrace the bigger and the fuller picture? Now Jesus then makes a statement which would have been affirmed by any Jew that believed in the resurrection. Your brother will rise again. And Martha responds with the good theology that she knows and has been taught. Yes, there will indeed be a resurrection on the last day. But I wonder if she's made a connection between this biblical hope for the last day and her personal and real grief of losing her beloved brother right here in the present. How can the theology of the resurrection bring comfort in the here and now? How can it give us a sure and stable foundation on which to stand that isn't contingent on what the outcome of our situation here and now might be? Or to put it another way, how how was Martha to live with a sure and real hope regardless of whether her brother stayed in the tomb or came out again? The answer is Jesus' words. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that miracles can happen and a dead person can be resuscitated? Well, good. Do you believe in the biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the body? Even better. But both are useless unless you believe in the one who is the author of life and who has been raised from the dead never to die again. This is what busy, anxious Martha needed to hear. She needed to be brought to this full faith in Jesus who is the only one who can take the future hope of resurrection and bring it to bear right on the griefs and the struggles of life today under the sun. He is the connection between theology and life. Without him, theology is just an academic exercise and Life is just us muddling our way through trying to work things out. Jesus' response then to Mary highlights the other side of the coin, so to speak, the harsh reality of death that Jesus had come to face head on. The Jewish period of mourning went for seven days and it was expected that a family should employ at least two flute players and at least one professional wailing woman in order to express publicly their grief. That cultural obligation would mean that your show of mourning could easily become more of a status symbol than as a way of actually processing your personal grief. 
And that's what Jesus is responding to here. When the ESV says that he was deeply moved, that's a bad translation. The word really means indignant. It literally means to snort with anger. And greatly troubled, it's the same word that's used to describe his own emotions as he went into the Garden of Gethsemane about to be arrested. Jesus is angry. He's not angry at Mary per se. He's not even angry at the professional mourners but he's angry that the tragedy of grieving the death of a loved one had been turned into this big obligatory affair in which the fact of death had become the one defining factor. People were grieving as if there was no hope. And his dear friend Mary, she'd been caught up and carried along by it all. So when in verse 35 Jesus himself wept, it's a different word to the one that's used in verse 33. In verse 33 the word means to wail aloud, hence the professional wailing woman. But here in verse 35 it's a word that simply means to shed tears. Jesus' grief at his friend's death was silent, yet it was internal, it was personal. Remember, Jesus had already planned to raise Lazarus just a few moments from now, yet the sting of death is still real. Death is still the intruder into his good creation, the sign that human beings are still under wrath, still under the curse of sin. And just as Lazarus' resurrection is a sign pointing forward to Jesus' resurrection, this tomb with a stone rolled across it is also a sign pointing to his own death and burial. In only six months, Jesus will be the one lying on the slab behind the stone wrapped in linen cloths. Jesus' certainty of the resurrection doesn't make his suffering at the cross any less severe or painful. He approached his death with his soul greatly troubled and in deep sorrow. His suffering was the real suffering of death. It wasn't just a show put on for the onlookers because There he was bearing the full weight of all of his people's sin, all of the judgment that we deserve. The pain was real. Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life because he is the one who's gone through this deep darkness of the suffering of death and conquered it. That's what the sign of Lazarus' temporary resurrection points to. Yes, Jesus has the power to raise the dead and yes, Jesus will be instrumental in the resurrection on the last day but only because he is himself the resurrection and the life as he introduced himself in Revelation. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
and I have the keys to death and Hades. Because he is who he is, the resurrection and the life, we can take his command seriously and joyfully, no matter what we face. What is his command? Fear not. Now you may not at this moment be facing death for you or for someone you know and love. However, you need to have this truth of Jesus' victory over death and Hades rooted deep in your heart now so that when you do face it, you will have that sure foundation of hope. But also because really all difficulty and suffering is in a way of speaking related to death. Death is simply the full outcome of suffering. It's the futility and the frustration of creation under the weight of the curse of sin come to its fullest expression. That means that if we know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and are assured of his victory over death, then we'll also be assured of his sovereignty over any other situation of hardship and suffering. Jesus doesn't minimise the seriousness of death and suffering. He comes to us. He weeps with us in our grief and our sorrow, even to the point of entering our death. But because he's done this, he also gives us a hope that can stand against all things, even the greatest enemy of death. 